poor Darwin. He thought, they don't want to know this. You know, <laughs> it's, it's so lovely. It explains everything. They'll be delighted. They were so not delighted. It was, it was terrible. Poor Darwin and his wife and his 11 children. What happens when your world shifts and you have to come to terms with a whole new reality? Barbara Kingsolver, the best-selling author of the Poisonwood Bible, The Lacuna, Animal, Vegetable, Miracle, and more, has some idea. I'm Rebecca Hoogs, the Associate Director of Seattle Arts and Lectures, and you're listening to Sal On Air, a collection of engaging talks from the world's best writers from over 30 years of Seattle Arts and Lectures. Sal's Executive Director, Ruth Dickey, sat down with Kingsolver in October 2018 to discuss her latest book, Unsheltered, at Benaroya Hall. The novel toggles between a small New Jersey town in 1870 and 2016, exploring both societal and family struggles. Unsheltered is a beautiful book about politics and economics and science and dogmatism and hope. It finds the parallels between the Victorian era, when Darwin's theory challenged the Judeo-Christian worldview, and our own time, when global warming has challenged beliefs about the future of humanity. And Unsheltered is also, because this is Barbara Kingsolver we're talking about here, a book about love and connection, about family and meaning and grief. This is Sal on Air. We're so excited you're here. Welcome. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. There are people way up there. Hi. Hi, people way up there. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) So congratulations on the new book, and I'd love to begin talking about Unsheltered. And I've heard it said that you begin each of your books with a question. So I'd love to start hearing, what was the question that drew you to write Unsheltered? Um, I don't know if I can say it in front of so many people. Uh, Something like WTF? (laughs) Question mark, question mark. Um, It was, um, I had finished flight behavior Um, It was 2013, 2014, and I was looking around at um, a a kind of polarized climate, a a loss of civility, um, a kind of um, failure of shelter at so many different levels. I thought, "This this looks like the end of the world as we know it. Um, and this was five years ago. <laughs> um, it, it really struck me that we were coming into a time uh, of, of, of enormous change. Um, um, that all the rules that we've, that so many of us have counted on all our lives uh, were failing, were no, didn't apply anymore. Um, just 
just sort of basic uh, household economies, um, a job at the end of a degree, you know, um, a pension at the end of a career, uh, health care when you need it, and even, you know, much bigger things than that, like that the glaciers in Glacier National Park would stay frozen. Um, really enormous uh, truths that we've always held self-evident seem no longer true. Uh, there will not, it seems, always be more fish in the sea. And yet, we keep behaving as if there will. That seemed to me um, to be, um, what was it that you said? The illumination of the issues of our time. That, that seemed to be the one. Um, how, will we, how will we manage this? I wondered, and so that was my starting point. And you had structured the book focusing on two moments in time. I'd love to hear, how did that structure come to you? How did you pick 1870? Well, um, well f first I'll tell you why I, I, I decided to do that right, um, right from the start. Um, it's very difficult for a novelist, or for anyone really, to... Um, to talk too directly about how we're behaving in in the moment, um, because you know people don't don't like that. Um, um, so I thought, what if I found some earlier time when people were dealing with um, not just a crisis but a paradigm shift, a, a, a moment that called for whole new ways of thinking. Um, and watched them resist. Um, and when you look back, you know, and see how hard people fought against thing, uh, the obvious, you look at them and you say, they were so foolish. Well, <laughs> I, then you could maybe put two and two together. <laughs> so why 1875? Um, that seemed like a perfect uh, kettle of fish. That was a moment when the, the country had just come through a terrible war. We were as divided as we are now, along actually very similar geographic um, uh, lines. And so we had become two countries that were put back together by treaty, but um, then you know, but we still had these, you know, after, after people have spent five years trying to kill each other, you don't just say, okay, make nice now. Um, it's over. Uh, so it was a very polarized nation, profoundly damaged. More, it's one in five um, men uh, um, of, of fighting age died in that war in the country. It was in, there was enormous loss of life, enormous, and kind of, in some ways, permanent loss of property throughout a lot of the agricultural areas of the South, uh, loss of livelihood. Um, so people were feeling very unsheltered, if you will. And then into this arrives Charles Darwin, who wrote a couple of books saying, basically, that after, after carefully observing the natural world for 33 years, he had come to the conclusion that 
um, humans are not the bosses of the living world. Actually, the same uh, physical, um, uh, the same laws of physics, of chemistry, of natural selection that have created, the, that, that apply to the world, apply to us too. That we are not in charge of the world, we're actually made of the same stuff as the world. <laughs> that did not, and, and poor Darwin, he thought, they'll want to know this. You know, it's, it's so lovely. It explains everything. They'll be delighted. They were so not delighted. It was, it was terrible. Poor Darwin and his wife and his 11 children um, just didn't see this coming. He was the most reviled person on earth. Thank goodness there was no internet. Emily Dickinson hated Darwin. That's how bad it was. <laughs> so, so, um, so, this, and I've been interested in for a long time in Darwin's century. You know, in that in the that period of time and how it changed the thinking of 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 scientists and how um, it kind of reorganized the whole way that. Um, biologists looked at the world, but I had never really spent that much time thinking about everybody else and how profoundly disoriented this left people. So I just thought, wasn't that a time uh, like now when people felt that this was the end of the world as they knew it? So th I chose those two times and I went looking for, I wanted to put a, re a historical, a, a real historical figure um, into this novel who could um, kind of anchor the, the debate, the Darwinian debate. I wanted characters who had a dog in this fight, in other words, you know, who would be um, somehow made at risk by their support of Darwin. So that was, that was the next step, to find someone I, originally, I thought it would be Darwin himself, and then I just thought, I better leave him alone. He's, uh, he's been through enough. So, um, um, and I really wanted to set it in the United States. So, um, so yeah, so for, for, several, for a couple of years, I had the structure of the novel worked out, um, but it was a novel in search of a location. That's a perfect segue to, I was so curious what the research process was like for you for this book, because there's a ton of really juicy, awesome research in there. Um, well, it began, juicy, awesome research, uh, or, or, or details, you know, the goods arrive after you have read through thousands of pages of unjuicy, unawesome, <laughs> you know. Uh, material, you know, as as probably everyone knows. So, um, so it, so that's why it took a couple of years. I I read, um, I read, uh, I thought I, I thought about Asa Gray, who was um, he was probably the best known uh, friend of Darwin on on um, 
on this side of the Atlantic in those days. He was at Harvard. He was an important botanist. And he, he and his colleagues were kind of my starting point. I thought it might be one of them. I might set it in Boston. I read and read and read about Asa Gray. It just, you know, it was like one of those dates that, you know, looks good on paper. And just the chemistry wasn't there. Just swipe left. Just. But it, but it, it took me a, a long time to swipe left. I, um, way too way too long. So but but okay. The time wasn't lost. I learned, of course, a lot about. And Asa Gray does eventually figure in. He has kind of cameo role. But in the process of reading his correspondences. I ran across the name Mary Treat, uh, a name I had never heard before, or never read before. Um, he mentioned her as a correspondent of Charles Darwin. Why didn't I know there was a lady scientist, as they called him in those days, corresponding with Charles Darwin? Um, I tried to find out more about her. I, it was difficult. There, no biography has been written of her. She's, she's not, she doesn't even show up in a lot of the um, collected correspondences of Darwin. She's just dropped out. I imagine, you know, the archivist over the years seeing a letter from a lady and just filing that under, you know, mistress or, you know, some, you know, domestic, whatever, not understanding this was a colleague. She had just disappeared. She, she, but in fact, I could find out um, that she, she left a, an, a, a significant body of work. She wrote a number of books uh, about natural history, uh, books, articles. Uh, she did experiments with Darwin, uh, kind of, you know, long distance. They, she would do things that he was interested in and write to him about them. Um, and she wrote not only for, and she corresponded really with all the important, a lot of the important scientists of, of her day, um, but she um, uh, and she read, she wrote not only for the um, scientific, you know, for scientific audiences, but also for the popular press. She wrote books, um, books and articles for magazines like Harper's and Atlantic Monthly. So I could find her her work. But she was just this mystery woman. I couldn't find out about her. The only personal detail I could, I could, um, could find is that she lived in Vineland, New Jersey, a place where I had I never, in this life, imagined I would set a novel. Um, just nothing against New Jersey. I just didn't, you know know anything about it at all. It's like, it's the garden state, but not really, or, um, I, I don't know. I didn't know. I just had no feeling for, for New Jersey, but that's where she lived. So I, uh, called up there and I discovered there was a historical society. So we call, you know, put in a call and asked, uh, about Mary Treat. Do you have any information? And the answer was, wait till you see what we've got. 
So I got on a plane and I went, and there was a, a just a deep archive. She left. Every, she she died without children, so she left everything to this historical society. And I had her letters. I had uh, letters. People had a lot of letters that people had written about her that ended up there. And so I had this this wonderful cache of information. Um, and I found out that not only was she a, a really interesting lady scientist, she was a soap opera. She was, I mean, well, not she herself. Only she was a figure in a in a in a in a, in a grander um, drama, including, for example, a wackadoo husband who ran off. Uh, to New York chasing after a glamorous suffragette who believed in free love. Um, and, um, and, and, and she, she was like, go, <laughs> fine. <laughs> More room for my experiments. It's, it's, ac it, it's actually interesting. I, I eventually realized that this was perfect. This was the, probably, if you wanted to be, um, uh, as a woman in the 19th century, if you wanted to do some work of your own, the best position to be in was um, the wife of a husband who had run off. Um, because you don't ha have people, you know, bugging you to get married or, you know, sort of questioning your, your unmarried state, but you also don't have this guy around, you know, telling you to cook dinner. So. Um, <laughs> She just seemed happy as a clam. Um, so, and I really, I could learn, I learned, I could just hear her voice. She has a very distinctive voice that came through in her written work and in her letters. So I just fell in love with Mary. And this was the jackpot. This is the, what did you call it? The juicy, <laughs> the, the juicy part. Um, in addition to the free love and the suffragette. Mary Treat lived in, Vineland, New Jersey, which had been um, established in 1861 as a utopian community by um, this interesting man named Charles Landis, who um, who had this big idea. He was a he was a big big thinker. Uh, he uh, and a big ego. So he bought this huge amount of land, he laid out the streets, he brought in the railroad, one of the first, um, and he sent out the ads, come to Vineland. Um, and one of the first buildings he commissioned was the Historical Society. It was that self-conscious. So that, <laughs> so that from the very first edition, the weekly newspaper, which he wrote and edited entirely himself, <laughs> could be deposited in the Historical Society. And he was the mayor, he was the postmaster, he um, owned many, many businesses, and his leadership style was to um, organize the, the laws of the town so that that his businesses thrived. He had hotels. He had uh, an odd flop of hair. <laughs> and he, are you ready for this? 
He actually shot somebody on Fifth Avenue. <laughs> now that's juicy. I so so I I knew I had found my place. So then what I had to do, I just fell down the rabbit hole of Vineland. I I I had a lot, very well-preserved archive of material about this town, and also I could, um, and it was. Inter- I will add that the Victorian idea of a ut- of utopia is that the um, the Italian and the Greek immigrant farmers come in and they do all the hard work, and then the wealthy people come in and they have uh, tea and they attend the lecture series, and that's <laughs> perfect. That's a perfect world. And, and, amaz- and it's kind of amazing, I mean, reading, in, insofar as I could tell, reading about it, People mostly agreed. Yeah, this is this is a this is a perfect world. They couldn't think outside of of that very stratified, um, basically unfair uh, division of labor and ownership. And so there they went until you know there was there's always trouble in paradise. Um, gives you a plot. So uh, which I've already hinted at. So um, so. So then my, my project was to really get to know um, 1870s Vineland and walk around the streets and really get to know what this utopia had come to 150 years later and set my story, which is, you know, and, and do the kind of, novelists do all kinds of research, we do things you know, like read archives. We also do things like walk around town and, and you know, surreptitiously take pictures of people, you know, like walking their dogs or working on their cars or, you know, like go, ask permission to go in their backyards and take a picture of the back of their house. Or, um, so just to, get, to really get a feel for what this, the modern story would be as well. So that's, that's, how, that's how it all began. And with that level, all that richness to explore, I wonder how did you determine, how did you know when you had enough? Like how did you suss out when to stop diving into Vineland? Uh, when to stop re- learning about Vineland? Mm-hmm. Well, um, I had a limited amount of time there. I had allowed myself close to two weeks um, just to, to, to be there to get the material I needed. Um, and, you know, it was wonderful to, to take, just take a whole lot of photographs, not just of people walking their dogs, but also um, I just photographed, I just set up an easel and photo, my husband with, went with me and very kindly helped me with this, set up an easel and just took, just photographed hundreds, probably thousands of documents. It's so easy to do now. It just takes no room at all, you know, in your, in your uh, little device. And then I could come home and study them at my leisure. And I made a great friend of this wonderful woman, Patricia Martinelli, who is the curator of this collection, um, who just said, you know, just call me anytime and anything more you need. Or if I find, she became, you know, she got excited about looking for, there's so little about Mary, I mean, we just wanted more. There are only two pictures, two photographs of her in existence that we know of. We found 
two more that we think are Mary. Um, so just, you know, we were, I was just hungry for photographs or anything, but whenever Pat found anything, she would call me up and say, I found a Mary. So, um, so I knew that I could go back if I needed to, um, but that, just that first trip gave me a, really enough to, to chew on for months and months. And I was, I mean, when you asked me, you know, how, how did you know when you had enough? I think when I got to the shooting on Main Street, that was like, okay, I, I'm good here. Um, um, then, then it was time to go home and really begin... Uh, I had the, the sort of the, the architecture of the story, the bones of the story, but then really to to flesh out the characters to, and the plot to figure out what I wanted people to do and and who the people would be to do it. I'm curious because this novel deals so contemporaneously with issues of the day. Was it at all different for you from writing your pre previous novels? Um, Yes, in some way, in some ways, it was kind of weirdly like the life kept in, intruding into my novel. I was writing it. Well, it's it's set um, in the the twelve months prior to the. Um, the summer conventions that, you know, before the, the political, the, the presidential election. That's the modern part of the story. So it's set from summer to summer of, of 2015 to 2016. And so I was really, I was writing, and, the, and likewise the earlier story also is in, um, it's the same months, so it follows the same. I mean, you go back and forth, chapter to chapter, you slide back and forth between centuries, but it's, you know, it's August here, and then it's later August there, and then it's September here, and it's, you know, so, um, so you're moving through this year, and I was writing that in real time, and observing... I mean, when you think about where we where we were, sort of in the in the political scene, um, this this guy, um, you know, who is running for president is, you know, there's a lot of noise and a lot of attention, and you know, and and he was at that point someone that I had never seen on television and didn't think I ever would. Um, um, <laughs> um, and so, you know, and so this is sort of, and then, and, and it's not just, uh, it's not about him at all, really. It's about this, this kind of discourse and this polarization and this, this sort of anger, this sort of ferocious need that we're feeling among, you know, a large part of the population to, to pull back to some earlier time. And... You know, and I'm watching this happen, and I'm watching this this noise get louder, and thinking, well, this book won't be finished until, you know, I'll finish this at, like at the end of 2017. It'll come out in 2018. By then, probably no one will even remember this. <laughs> so, bad for the world, good for the novel. We remember. Um, but it, it was, it was really, because, and I guess 
what it means is that I was seeing what I w the question I was asking was a worthy one. You know, I mean, I was, I, I was asking, how do we, you know, how do people behave when we feel this afraid, when we feel this strongly um, um, uh, um, threatened by a new paradigm, and that's where this we're just we're living this in real time, and it and it was. Um, uh, and, and it, uh, yeah, it, it played out. <laughs> Boy, did it play out. Indeed. Um, it, and that's a perfect segue. One of the characters that I found so powerful in the book is Iano's father, Nick, um, uh -huh. who is, he's worked hard, he's an immigrant, he's worked hard his whole life, he's slowly dying through the book, and he's also a huge fan of the bullhorn and mm -hmm. of Fox News. And I wondered what the process of writing Nick was like for you. Um, yeah, I wanted to create a family that was a microcosm of the nation. So we have this household where um, Willa, who's the protagonist, who's, you know, she's lost, she was, she's, they're all people who, who followed the rules, who did everything right, and didn't, there was no Easter egg at the end of the hunt. So she's, she's had this job as a journalist, she was an editor of, of a magazine, and it folded. She's, she's in her 50s. The state of journalism is that she knows she's never going to have another job like that. She's trying, to be, she's trying to work as a freelancer. Her husband, Yano, is an academic. They chased the tenure track. He finally got tenure, and his college closed. So now they have these two kids in their 20s with terrible college debts and all kinds of other troubles. And so, and, and the younger one, Tig, is she's the... Um, She's the one who, this is what my mother used to say about me, if you, th if you threw her in the river, she would float upstream. That was, that's, that's the, that's, so she's the oppositional daughter, who, and so the kids are both, you know, have come back to live with them, and they have Nick, um, the, 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 um, the father-in-law who is, who's very ill and very, angry, this foul sort of effluent of obscenity just kind of rolls off of him. Um, he's the reason that um, when, when my husband Stephen read the first draft, he said, Barbara, this is not going to get into the AP English curriculum. <laughs> <laughs> Too many bad words. Um, but um, so, so here we have this household where Nick, um, his his idea of heaven is to have Fox News turned up to max volume all the time because he's deaf. And, um, and you know, Willa and Yano are more um, sort of NPR people. And then here's Tig who dropped out of college to go occupy Wall Street and, and who's telling her mother that she's wrong about everything. And so you have this family all of, um, of people who have very... Um, all of whom feel very strongly that they are right. Um, that's kind of where we are. So they're a microcosm of, of, the, of, of the nation, which is an interesting way to, to write about a nation, is to create a family. So, so my, of course, my task as the novelist is to, especially when I'm writing, when I want to write about conflict and create empathy and try to sort of bridge 
these, these, these gulfs of understanding or misunderstanding, the first thing I have to do really every single day at my writing desk is put myself down. Just put myself, I mean, not put myself down. You're, you're a bad writer. Um, <laughs> as a, sometimes I do that. Um, <laughs> um, put myself aside, we'll say, and go inside of these characters so deeply that I feel what motivates them. Because, and so I can, because I can be them from the inside, because that's the only way I can make them convincing to you. If I can get access to that person and, and be him, and show you how it feels to be him, and to, to know he's right, because everybody does, that's the only way he will seem realistic to you. So, so um, of, of course, I, you know, I, I, there are people in my neighborhood I could uh, interview for <laughs> for access to Nick. I know plenty. I know plenty of people, more or less like Nick. Most of them don't curse quite so colorfully. But um, um, I think it's a, it's. I didn't want to make him a cardboard character. I wanted to to have uh, compassion for him, and I and so that. I mean, that's, that's part of the story. So it's just, I guess what I'm saying is it's just work. It's just work that we do. We'll be back in a moment, but first, did you know that Barbara Kingsolver is a trained scientist? If you appreciate the observation and research that makes its way into her books, we think you'll love Sal's upcoming talk with Adam Davidson. Davidson is the creator of NPR's Planet Money podcast, and he will present on January 22nd to discuss his new book, The Passion Economy. Despite what you may have heard about the economy, robots are not coming to steal your jobs and the middle class is not disappearing. In fact, Davidson says that our 20th century economy of scale has given way to brand new ways of making money and to unprecedented opportunities for curious people to unite what they love with their professions. Tickets are available now at lectures.org, and just for Sal On Air listeners, we have a special promo code that will get you 30% off tickets. Just enter Davidson30 at lectures.org. Now, here's more from Barbara Kingsolver. You write so beautifully across genres, fiction and nonfiction and poetry, and I'd be curious how you choose which genre you want to use to explore a question or idea, and if the process is different for you in the different genres. That's a really good question. Um, I'm, um, I'm a writer who begins with theme, so generally I, um, I start with the process that I just described to you by thinking about what it is I want to write about. What, is, what are the big questions? Um, sometimes, and then I think about how to talk about it. Um, and then I choose a suitable vehicle from the fleet at my disposal. And I, and I love having a fleet, you know, sometimes um, you know, it's, you just need the serviceable Toyota of nonfiction. Um, some, sometimes you only need a wheelbarrow. You know, that's a poem. Something so, 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 so small enough to be contained in a, in a poem. Um, 
And sometimes you need the, well, the, the big old station wagon of a novel that you can just keep on throwing things in the back, you know, because it's just, because there's going to, you're going to need a lot for this ride. Um, so it, it's, it's usually a pretty uh, straightforward process to figure out what this is. And I, and I, I love creating characters, so I do love, um, I do love, novels and and my publisher would always want me to make it a novel uh, because that <laughs> that that seems but but I like the essay form I like short stories poems for me are not quite as theme driven I mean of course they're they're language driven and all of it is ultimately you know ultimately where I spend my time is with sentences you know and and to answer your question about how the process feels different, I think the preparation is different. You know, um, the the creating the the structure or the that laying the foundations. But once I'm once I'm there, once I am in into uh, the work, it's just all words. It's just about. Um, putting together language, putting together sentences that glow with their own internal light. And it doesn't happen the first time. You know, the first, the first draft is just a string of serviceable sentences. And then, uh, once I've gotten to the end of it, then, then there's a great relief because I feel like, okay, now I know I can do this, but you know, I still have 90% of the work ahead of me because I have to go back and replace every one of those serviceable sentences with something that's never been written before. And so that's the fun part. And, and additionally, um, once I know where I'm going, and I guess I'm talking about a novel now. I'm talking about a narrative, and I guess this also would apply to a book of narrative nonfiction. Um, yeah, it would. Um, I just decided. Um, <laughs> um, once I've gotten to the end, I know, know where I'm going. It's so much fun then to back up and tilt every scene sort of like angle the mirrors so everything is kind of pointing at that place where we're going so that and and so with every subsequent draft it gets a little more um a more a more delicately constructed um and often you know as a, a paragraph or a scene that i initially put in the beginning might move to the end or vice versa to have that freedom to to pull things all the way back you know and forward and it was especially fun in unsheltered with this double narrative because once i had written you know both lines through then i could start playing with kind of messing with you because a lot of there are a lot of things see this is this is what i'm doing i'm messing with you um, um there are a lot of things that happen in, just little things that happen in one uh, century that also happen in the other, um, that, that echo each other or reflect each other. So, so that's the fun of it, is just the, revi the revision is what I really love. Um, po poetry, poetry feels like a different 
a, a different process, although there's still, you know, revision to be done, but it tends to happen kind of all at once for me, a poem, and then, then the revision will happen, not all at once, but, you know, it is quicker. When did you first know you wanted to be a writer? I didn't. I didn't know I could be. Um, that option was not... It didn't, it didn't seem available to me. In the place and the time where I grew up in a rural, um, really rural agricultural place in Kentucky, um, it's, a, it's a culture of practicality. It's a culture of modesty. It's really, um, this is, it's an, I'm, I'm a Southern Appalachian. Um, it's a culture in which it's pretty important not to get a above yourself, not, um, if you understand what I mean by that. And so to be a child who marched around saying I wanted to be a writer when I grew up would be just like, it'd be like saying I want to be Marilyn Monroe or I don't know what, a fairy or just, just a Disney princess, I don't know. Um, it just, that's not something... I would have done, plus I didn't know any writers. I just knew I loved to read um, more than anything. Reading was, um, I just had a hunger uh, to go into books and ideally stay there forever uh, and not come out or go to school. Um, um, playing outdoors or reading books, that, that was my utopia. So, um, and I also, figured out pretty early that I, I loved to write. When I was um, seven, someone gave me one of those, a little red diary that had, um, you know, the, the kind with the cover and the little lock that had the tiny key. Do you, know, do you, you anybody remember these? Which my brother immediately showed me was, uh, uh, the key was, uh, was gratuitous because he could open it with a bobby pin. Um, so it didn't matter because uh, if anyone broke into my diary and read it, they would die of boredom. Um, it was just stupid stuff, you know, but, but I had it. And so I looked at it and I said, all these pages, I could, feel, I could fill these up. And so I did. I read books. I read a book. And then I went to bed, you know, and um, uh, there, there, half a page. Um, so so um, I, I did move pretty quickly beyond that to writing um, little poems and stories. And it's just what, for me, writing grew out of reading. I think it also grew, grew out of a fairly solitary childhood, a very odd, a very peculiar childhood, and a, a lot of isolation. And I really, I think it was reading novels that gave me this, this narrative voice in my head that would say, now she is now she is climbing a tree. Oh, now she has fallen out. <laughs> I wonder if she is hurt. Just this other, just this point of view that was my imaginary friend, I guess. Um, and I've never thought of it before, but maybe that was 
that was the uh, that was the author that was kind of my companion, but I never owned uh, until very much later. Um, I I was I was a closet poet. I didn't I I was lucky to get to go to college. Um, not very many people did uh, from my high school, almost none. So I thought I should study something useful, like science. I loved science. I loved every stu- every course I took in college was perfect. I wanted to major in that. Um, but but biology, you know, spoke to me. I loved it very much, and so that seemed like something I could do for a living because I wanted. The, the main thing I, I wanted to be when I grew up was somebody with a job. Um, and I know that, I mean, it, it sounds funny to say it now because, I mean, you know, my kids would say that now too for different reasons, but they have grown up with, you know, a mother with a job. I didn't. All the women I knew were um, farmers' wives really without exception, or my teachers, who were, all, who were all women who hadn't married, and it was as if that was like the only alternative, you know, you either a farmer's wife or you're, you're a mad old teacher. Um, <laughs> and I wanted, to, I wanted something else. So I thought I better just learn skills so that I can employ myself. But all the time I was writing... Uh, poems in the margins of my chemistry book and uh, stories and keeping them to myself. And it wasn't until very much later, it was, I was in my 20s, I had moved, um, uh, well after college I lived here and there and in France, any place I could, you know, just hitchhike and have, it, have an adventurous life. And I ended up in Tucson, Arizona, still um, secretly writing. Um, I went to graduate school uh, in ecology and evolutionary biology and um, started little by little showing my, my little writings to, to friends um, who said, this is actually good. Um, <laughs> which surprised me very much, but I still didn't think I was a writer. Um, it wasn't really until, well, okay, I wrote, I've, I, wrote a, I've, I wrote a novel just really, truly secretly, in secret, because I had a day job, and I was pregnant with my first child, and um, couldn't, I had terrible insomnia, and so I had all those hours at night so instead of writing short stories, it seemed like I had time to fill up, so I wrote a novel. Um, you know, because why wouldn't you? Um, and I honestly, I truly did not think anybody would ever read it. Um, but in, before I had, uh, so before I went into, and I had a hard deadline, you know, had to finish, um, and, and then which turned out not to be a hard deadline because my daughter Camille was three weeks late, three, three weeks, and my the OB was saying we better induce, and I was saying uh uh-uh, uh no, I got another chapter to write, and um, so I I finished it and it's. 
I remember this moment so well. I was cleaning up, you know, as you do before you have a baby. I was cleaning, just cleaning up the house. And I had this stack of paper, and I could throw it in the trash can, or I could send it um, to somebody in New York. And I really believed the outcome of those two operations would be identical. I, 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 I honestly, truly did. But... I opted for door number two. I attached a note to it um, that said, I'm sorry. <laughs> she still has that note. Um, she showed it to me recently. Um, I'm sorry. I think this is a novel. I'm not sure. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> and, um, and then I had... Then I had, uh, then I, then I had my baby, uh, my wonderful baby. And then I came home from the hospital, and my uh, answering machine was blinking, as they did. You remember those? And it was a message that said, "Your yes, it is a novel. Your novel, The Bean Trees, is going to be published by Harper." So that's the long answer to, to your question. I, I have arrived at it. That's, I guess, when I knew I was a writer. Um, I, it was incontrovertible. And I was a mom. You know, both of those things happened on the same day. Very big day at my house. I think we're all so glad you sent it to New York and went that direction. Me too! <laughs> yeah. So we're going to begin taking some audience questions, but I want to make sure to ask you about, in addition to your own writing, you also founded the Bellwether Prize to support um, literature of social justice. And I'd love to hear you talk about why did you decide to do that? Well, um, one novel led to another, and I reached a point um, uh, with Poisonwood Bible, which I think was about my seventh book, where, um, you know, the, the advances got bigger. And I got an advance for that book that was more than, um, more than I needed to, for, to support my family. And I thought, I need to do something with this. And I thought about how uncertain I had been um, that my writing was worthy. And I think... I felt that way because that, that thing I wrote that I wasn't sure was a novel, was, it was about ordinary people, it was about women, it was about child abuse, it was about things that, really hard things that I was dealing with and people in my world were dealing with that I didn't see uh, being dealt with really very much in fiction. And I thought, what if I could take this money and establish a prize for other people who are in that place, who, are, who think that what they're writing might be a novel, um, but they're not sure because the publishing world isn't, doesn't seem... Um, that eager to embrace um, fiction, literary fiction that's about hard things. So I wanted it specifically, and I t the amount of my first advance was $25,000. That's 
that's the check that changed my life. Because I got that and I said, I can quit my day job, I can live on this for a year and write another book. And, and I did. And so I thought, if I could give that amount of money to someone who has written their first novel, their first unpublished novel, if I could give them that award and the guarantee of publication, because that's the other part of the prize, then that could found a career. So that's what the prize does. And we award it every other year. And we judge the manuscripts blind. We don't know who wrote this. We don't know whether it's a man or a woman or uh, somebody's dog, although probably not. Um, Dave Barry's dog wrote a book, I hear. Um, but he's exceptional. Um, uh, so, so we read the manuscripts, and then we, you know, we choose the winner, and then we find out who wrote it, and then I get to call them and say, hi, this is Barbara Kingsolver, and then I hear them say, ah! And so, so it's, it's, it's really wonderful. But, but, oh, it's been, we've, uh, the prize is in its 20th year, and so there have been 10 new, not new careers founded. Um, and every one of them has has done wonderful things um, at, subsequent to the to the first novel. A wonderful prize and a gift to the world to have all those books in it. Um, we had a great question that came in in advance. It's from a student at Seattle University, and she would like to know. Her name is Amelia. If you had to put two of your characters from two separate books into one story, which two would you like to have interact, and why? That is so funny you should ask. This is a drinking game at my house. <laughs> the, the winner so far seems to be R Rachel from Poisonwood Bible with Eddie Bondo. <laughs> You're not buying that at all. <laughs> I think it takes a few drinks before it... <laughs> um, one, in one of my favorite scenes from Unsheltered, to jump back to that for a second, uh, Tig and Javier, who both work in restaurants, are making dinner when Willa thinks there's no food in the house. And it made me wonder um, how having a restaurant, the Harvest Table, has affected your fiction. Oh, um, well, first of all, for the better, because... I don't do, it's my husband's project entirely. I don't do anything except eat there or order, order out. Uh, so it gives me more writing time. Um, so um, no, that's, that's a project that uh, grew out of Animal Vegetable Miracle. And it's, a, it's really a community development project in our little town where there are a lot of farmers um, and without a market for what they grow. So it's a, it's a really interesting project, but it's not, it doesn't take, I mean, and people do come in there, um, because I, I was surprised to find, because I don't ever creep myself. Uh, my daughters told me this, if you Google Barbara Kingsolver, like the third thing that comes up is Barbara Kingsolver's restaurant. So um, people do come in there thinking that I'm gonna be like in the kitchen or something. Um, <laughs> I'm not, um, 
But, um, but it's, it's interesting that you, you noticed that, uh, that scene in which um, you, you watch Tig and Jorge actually making this food step by step. So you could, it's a recipe. You could, you could read that, uh, those several pages and you could make those tostones if you wanted to. Well, that's something I decided really from my second novel on, since the first one was not really very deliberate. But after that, once I knew I was a novelist, I made, um, I made up my mind that in every one of my novels there would be a recipe, because that way if people don't get anything else out of it, <laughs> they'll have a recipe. Now we'll go back and look for them. <laughs> right? Do you collect anything? Well, after each novel, people, I find, send me things. And um, sort of theme gifts. Now, I want to, I'll back up and say people have sent me the most beautiful and remarkable and amazing things. Letters, many times, um, but also works of art, objects that have, uh, of art that have been inspired by, um, by, by something that of mine they've read. But there are also these theme gifts. So after flight behavior, as you would imagine, I got monarch abelia. Um, I have monarch earrings. Actually, I have some really beautiful monarch earrings, monarch scarves. After uh, pigs in heaven, pigs with wings. Who knew? This is such a, such a decorator item. Pigs with wings. So, you know, and on it goes. And my husband asks me, when are you going to write a novel called Mustang Convertible Dreams? <laughs> Probably never, but, you know, a guy can dream. <laughs> What books are you currently reading, and what were the books of your childhood that inspired you? Um, well, I, I had a I had a largely unsupervised childhood, so I was uh, I just read any any I didn't we didn't have I wasn't given children's books, so we would just my brother and I we would read anything. We found these medical textbooks that <laughs> educated us beyond our years. Um, <laughs> Um, the encyclopedia, but I, um, I, I discovered novels probably in my early teens, and one, um, uh, a book that just really changed everything for me, it was, it was not one book, it's a series, the, um, the Children of Violence series by Doris Lessing, does anyone know those books? The Martha Quest novels, there are five of them, ending with the, um, uh, the Four Gated City, and um, that just blew me away. That's, that, those books showed me that novels could be of the world, of uh, sort of what, novel, what fiction could be in the world, and it really um, sort of expanded my notion of, of um, sort of 
how I could access the world for, through novels. But I, you know, I loved Steinbeck, I loved Moby Dick. Um, I tried to read Virginia Woolf and I didn't understand, but then I went back later and thought, oh, this actually is really, really good, but you, um, you have to be a bit older. Um, um, so what I'm reading now is, you know what, I'm gonna, I'm gonna shortcut this and tell you. Um, you know that column in the New York Times book review called By the Book? Look at it this week. It's me. And it, and it will tell you all the hundred books that are on my nightstand. And, uh, and there you'll be. There you'll know. Do you ever sing at readings anymore? And do the rock bottom remainders still exist? Wait, did I ever sing at readings? I don't know. <laughs> Is there evidence of this? <laughs> I, uh... I... Actually, earlier this year, I, was, I got to go to Australia and I gave a reading in the Sydney Opera House and I was so tempted to sing. Just a, just a teeny bit, like, Did you? once upon a time, so that I could, so I could go home and say, I sang in the, no, I did, but I, did, I resisted the temptation for the betterment of all concerned. Um, and I love to sing, but it's not my, it's not my, First gift, I would say. I just, I just loved, I just loved to sing. But um, I never did sing in the rock bottom re remainders. I, well, I, I, I did a little bit, but mostly I was a keyboard player. And no, I haven't done that for many, many, many years. I, that was just a fling. It was, uh, <laughs> it was not. It didn't last for me. I mean, they're still, they're still out there. Dave Barry and uh, Ridley Pearson, and occasionally Stephen King. They still. Go, go play, but no, not me. Changing gears entirely, a really interesting question about research. How do you picture research for future writers in the absence of letters, and what role do you think digital records and communications will serve? Boy, is that a good question. Um, I can't, I can't guess. I, um, I imagine that people are saving their emails. I mean, I know I am, but I don't know what in the heck I'm ever going to do with them. Um, and so, I, but I, I know that there are archivists out there um, because, you know, they started contacting me. Um, I, something, it's sort of something like when a writer turns 60, it's like the AARP. Um, <laughs> They start contacting you to find out when you're going to deposit your, you know, your archives in, uh, in, some, in some library or institution. And I, just, and I say, well, I'm not dead yet. And, and plus, I don't want you reading my letters. Um, but, you know, but, I, but having, having um, you know, had conversations with these wonderful people who do preserve, uh, preserve materials, for future use, they already, I know that they're working on it. I know that they are working on ways of preserving correspondence. But, you know, the quality of the, I mean, I, I still write emails that, you know, just because I'm, you know, I'm the kind of hairpin I am. I write these long emails as if I were writing a letter with the advantage of having it delivered immediately. Um, but my, my millennial daughters tell me that, that that's, that isn't done. 
That's not, I'm, you're not supposed to do that. You're supposed to be, sort of, it's sort of like my, my emails are letters and my texts are emails. So, <laughs> so if I got to the tweet, maybe I would be at the text. Anyway, anyway, good question. Yeah. Um, this audience member would like you to please tell us about your Icelandic sheep. What are their names and what kind of inspiration do you draw from caring for them? Wow, thank you for um, bringing my sheep into the conversation. Um, yes, I live on a farm, it's a real farm. Um, we, produce, uh, we produce vegetables. Some of what we produce grows to, uh, goes to the restaurant um, uh, to, or to other people or to ourselves. And we raise Icelandic sheep for meat and wool. They're, uh, they're beautiful. They're all color, they're not all, we don't have any green sheep, for example, but um, they're, they're multicolored. They're what's called a primitive breed, which means that they're, um, they're closer to the original, you know, sheep ancestor, you know, whatever, the Neanderthal sheep, would, uh, <laughs> such as it might be. Um, so they're white, brown, black, silver, pinkish. They're all they're many, many colors, so their natural colors are are lovely. I use the I have the fleece spun into yarn, um, some of which I use myself to knit sweaters for everybody I know. And um and um and 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 we eat them. What are their names? Uh well, we have a lot of them, you know. I'm not going to bore you with it. But it's interesting that um, this is not just at our farm, but a convention among animal, uh, uh, you know, in animal husbandry on farms, is that you name a cohort all with one letter. So, like, it's the L year. All of the lambs are given L names. M the next year, N. So we started with Loki um, and such. When we got to the X, and, and this, is, this is a practical thing. It helps you, you always know sort of who's related, because they all have the same father. So you, you know who's related to who, how old they are, and it has a practical value. So when we got to X, I voted skip my very creative and poetic daughter Lily says, no, we're not gonna skip it. So we have, but we went for X, Y, Z. We compressed those into one year. So we have Xavier's and Yolanda's and, uh, and a Zeus. And so there you are. That might be more than you want to know about my sheep. <laughs> What's it like for you to read your books for Audible? I love reading my books for, for, um, for audiobook. Um, um, I'm, uh, I, all of, almost all of my novels, I think not The Bean Trees, but I believe all of my other novels are available unabridged in, uh, uh, audio form read by me. Um, the one, thank you. Um. The one exception is Poisonwood Bible because they wanted that they wanted me to go into the studio like immediately excuse me immediately after I'd had a baby and it was you know just wasn't going to work so I actually got to audition the actor uh, who apparently sounds so much like me that people think that it's me that wasn't my intention but um, but um, otherwise they're all me. Um, I I love doing this. Um, 
you go into the studio. They, I, I get to do it at a studio near my home, which is great. So I just drive in every day. I spend my eight hours in the studio and I get to go home and sleep in my own bed. And they send a director from New York. So you have a director and a, an engineer in the booth and you, and I, and you read the whole book. Uh, you knew that part. Um, <laughs> and I'm so lucky that my publisher still allows me to do this because the con audiobooks have become so extremely popular. They're, you know, they're a, they're a valued form now, and publishers mostly hire actors mm -hmm. to do fiction. Nonfiction's different. You know, if it's Trevor Noah's biography, they want Trevor Noah, obviously. Um, uh, or Dr. Oz's diet book. Well, you know, they, you need Dr. Oz. But for fiction, it's almost always now actors. So I'm always happy when once again they say, no, Barbara, we want you to do it. So I try to do a really good job. Um, and I, 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 the reason I love it so much is that I have, and now, I mean, it is hard work, you know, to just sit there and especially you, you get to these you know, steamy sex scenes. And here's, there's like these two guys looking at you through the glass and you just stay in character and you <laughs> say those words. Um, try, to get it, try to get through it in one take. Um, but um, how it is for me is that I've been living for several years with these voices in my head. And really, really, I hear them. They, they, um, and so this is, so I get to go in the studio and, and try to channel those voices as exactly as I can um, so that you hear them the way I heard them. And I, I'm kind of possessive about this, particularly if something is set in Southern Appalachia, I want to make sure the accents are all all, all exactly right. I don't trust, sorry, an outsider to, to do that. Um, um, and also the inflections. I mean, I know just what I, what I meant when I wrote this. Um, so, so I love doing that. It takes, one, they always book two weeks in the studio. I usually get it done um, in one or less if there are sex scenes. Um, so, um, um, and when I'm finished, it helps me to, I don't want to say exorcise, that's not right, but um, they're not demons in me, but, um, um, well, some of them are devils, but um, I feel like it helps me to finish with those characters, to move them out. And when I give them to you in audiobook form, I feel like I'm giving you something that's a little different from the book. It has something in it. That's that's extra. So um, if you you know if you want, I can read you the whole book in your car. Um, <laughs> I'm so happy to do it. Um, I, I will. I'll add one uh, one extra um, little note there, which is that my the, it, it didn't. These books didn't used to be you know audiobooks didn't used to be so popular. So my early my first books were not. Um, um, in, on, they were abridged. They were, which is ter a terrible, terrible thing. Um, it's like 15% of the book. You don't want that. Um, so, 
Recently, my uh, publisher asked me to go back into the studio to, to bring my catalog, you know, all into audio. They asked me to go into the studio to record Animal Dreams. So I said, sure, I'll do that without really thinking that this would mean... So um, the weekend before I went into the studio, I thought, it has been 30 years since I wrote that book. Um, is that right? Almost. No, 28. So um, I better read it first. <laughs> and I spent the first couple of chapters like saying, no, no, you don't need to say that much. You know, just like I was just sort of, I was, I, it wasn't, I, I, which is not to say I thought it was terrible. I didn't say, no, you know, I didn't throw it across the room, but I just thought this isn't, this isn't the book I would write now. Um, it, it, it was, it just was, it, it was a different voice. It was, a, it felt a little more emotional, a little more, less restrained, I think is the, the main thing I felt, um, less economical. There were things about it that kind of bothered me, and then I thought, I don't get to rewrite this book. I just have to make my peace with this. So I let go, and I did it. I read it, and then I went into the studio, and I, and I made my peace with that book. And by the end of it, I thought, how interesting it is to come face to face with the 30-year-old Barbara, you know, the 30-year-old writer, the writer I was then, and accept that she has her place in the world. There are plenty of people who still tell me that's their favorite book of mine. And maybe it's because, maybe they're closer to the age that I was when I wrote it, maybe they're not, but for whatever reason, that writer um, speaks to them. So I should let her be. I should not just like, you know, censor her or anything. It's just an interest, I, I don't know if, if you find that interesting, but it just made me realize that a writer is m many different writers. And you, of course, experienced that. You probably knew that all along. But it was an interesting process for me to, to accept as, you know, as I, as I, as I age and as I mature as a writer, I'm happy to feel that each book, you know, undertakes new challenges. Each book is harder and I think better, but also just, you know, that doesn't mean the earlier ones are worse. They're just different. We have time for two more questions. Um, and the first one is, do you plan to write any more poetry? And this audience member wants you to know they loved Another America. Well. Thank you very much, and I, I am, I'm, uh, I'm happy to tell you that my next book is going to be a collection of poetry. Thank you. I, publishers, you know, they like you to write novels. Um, I don't really know why it is that Americans who are, you know, we're supposed to be so pressed for time, and yet. What do we read most? Novels. Poetry is, I love poetry so much. I read poetry every night. It, I try to make it the last thing I read before I go to sleep because I feel like it's like flossing the word-loving parts of my brain. It's just, it, it's just so 
so good. So, and I love writing poetry, but I had been reluctant for years to, to approach my publisher because I thought they would um, uh, not, not be, you know, happy with the prospect of a book that wasn't going to, uh, that nobody was going to read. Um, <laughs> And, and they would have a point. But, um, but I was really happy that their, their response was, was very positive. And I think, I'm told there is a kind of resurgence in, in, uh, in, in, of interest in poetry. So that's really exciting because, because um, that's, I'm, I'm thrilled to be working on that. It won't be, it's not, it's not finished, it will not be next year, but it might be the next. Your work engages the most challenging issues of our time, and in terms of our times, what gives you hope? What? <laughs> now, this is no. This is a really. This is a really good question. It's a serious question, and um, and I want to answer it well. What gives me hope is the fact that I don't have a choice. Hope is not, hope isn't something you just have, like, I don't know, left-handedness or a heart murmur or something. It's a thing that you, you do. It's a thing that you choose. It's, it's a kind of energy that you, you access in order, in, order to, in order to use, in order to do something with it. So, um, so I, and I and I think that we that I think that I have to choose it because the minute I give it up, I'm opting out. I'm saying I will no, I will no longer love this world. I will no longer attach myself to this world in a way that makes me try and try and try to make it better. And if I did that, if I checked out, then I'd be turning my back on, on everyone who's half my age and younger. I would be turning my back on my kids and your kids and their kids forever and ever. And I can't be that person. That's institutionalized child abuse. So what we do is we hope until we've used it up at the end of the day and we go to bed and then we get up the next morning and we pull it on with our shoes and we walk out there and we wear it. Thank you, Barbara Kingshofer, for giving us hope through your work, through your writing, and through your words. Thank you so much for being here with us tonight. Please join me in thanking Barbara Kingshofer. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much to Barbara Kingshofer for joining us on the South Stage. Thanks as well to the Seattle Arts and Lectures staff board and community, and thanks to all of you for listening. This show would not be possible without you. 
Our show is produced by Jack Straw Cultural Center with theme music by Daniel Spills. To hear more, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review us so that more people can enjoy Sal on Air.